0: Hello, I'm Peter Eyes and welcome to The Stages Podcast. Today, my guest is sound designer Nate Edmondson. Sound has been used to evoke emotion, reflect mood and underscore action in the arts since time began. The contribution of the sound designer in the theatre provides a further dimension in which to elicit the world of the play. Nate Edmondson is an international, multi-award winning composer, sound designer and occasional musical director. His work crosses all mediums, film, television, radio, advertising and stage. Originally from Western Australia, Nate grew up amongst the remote red dirt and spin effects of the Pilbara region before moving to Perth. There he trained as both a classical and jazz trombonist and pianist in addition to fronting several local bands as a multi-instrumentalist singer-songwriter and arranger. Nate is a graduate of the National Institute of Dramatic Art where he trained under the mentorship of some of Australia's finest musicians and sound designers. He creates designs in intimate spaces and large auditoriums, all with enormous detail, providing audiences with a powerful oral hypnosis that transports them directly to the world of the play. He is a passionate advocate for the artistry of sound design and how it extends our theatre experience. He is also incredibly fascinating and eloquent, detailing how the youngest of all production disciplines evolved.
1: Anyway, I don't know, we might might, uh, do it again.
0: One day, but, but, but in a cer- different format. There's certainly a um, a need for it, though. I think you know we need to sort of broadcast uh, what's happening, well, on yeah. the national stage, but also locally as much as possible. There's not a lot around.
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing i um, we were only what we did two or nine episodes that we released, so let's say kind of ten weeks that we were out there. In that time, we didn't really experience much growth in terms of our audience and. I, I found that kind of difficult, given how much work you put into it as well. Well, it's promotion, I
0: guess. I mean, I, I just sort of do the socials in, in Instagram, Facebook, yeah, and that's And it. that's the side
1: that Susie does. Um, and yeah. she was good at that. But I, um, what, what bugged me, even the people that we had on, even the guests wouldn't really do much to promote the episodes. Like, you know, like share a link on your Facebook or something. You know, yeah, yeah, just Just yeah. get it out there. Yeah. So we had a very, yeah, we weren't really experiencing much growth.
0: Um, mine, mine really do the, the same, you know, mm. It's um, and it's only probably 18 months now that I've been doing it that yeah. the numbers are really starting to grow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I sort guess it's a, such a saturated market. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. not for our particular topic, I suppose.
0: But, oh, no, I, I think you'll find that there's a lot of people who really want to listen to arts and, and theatre. Well, I saw I mean, the, um, the... You know, it was really quality in-depth sort of discussion that you're providing. Yeah,
1: <laughs> It was interesting. I, I don't know if you find this. I guess you have quite a variety of guests, not just sort of strictly... Yeah, it's not just... Kind uh, of stuff. Yeah. But we were kind of finding, well, at least I was starting to feel like, oh, we're, we're treading. I feel like it's the same. I mean, there's a lot of issues that are in the industry at the moment that are very prevalent and it got to the point where you felt like you were having the same conversations a lot just over and over in different ways with different people. Yeah. But it, that started to feel a little bit tricky. And also, we were stupid to to go for the um, the setup of, of the kind of closing night thing of, like, the, the podcast comes out in the week or so, following the show closing. Great idea, but it just locks <laughs> you into this timeline that becomes really difficult. And also, like, anyone who's missed the show, it just has no meaning. The further you get from that date, that has less and less meaning. It took a while to push... Susie down that road particularly, cause she comes from the reviewer background, her perspective is more as an audience member. So she would always be asking questions that were a little bit more about the show and about the kind of surface level of, of that, like a, you know, as if you were doing a puff piece. Mm. But all that stuff for me, I'm like, well, anyone who has missed the show, that's meaningless to them. Like I'd mm. rather talk about the artists and f- go into detail about the industry and things beyond the show.
0: So I guess it should have been called opening night therapy rather than <laughs> <Yeah>. closing night <laughs> therapy.
1: I think if we do it again, we'll probably change the format So It becomes more kind of like what yours is, I suppose, more like profile pieces. Yeah. But you can we'll still have that. people that are working together, but mm. there's less about what they're working on, more yeah. about what they do. And Just finding hmm.
0: that hook. and making it topical I guess if you're looking at a show after it's finished it sort of then loses currency yeah exactly but if you
1: talk about it while it's still open or before it opens then it's so hard for it not to just become a puff piece to Mm. like steer it out of that territory Mm. And, yeah.
0: what do you mean by puff piece just a well you know promotion. yeah a
1: promotional thing yeah, you know yeah, yeah. Like, to get people to be honest about it we we weren't trying to be too kind of i mean no one's going to go on to a podcast and bitch about their colleagues or about no. a process or a company no. they're working for but you kind of want some honesty in terms of like oh actually this is really hard or we discovered this along the way but if you're doing it prior to the show closing then you kind of no one's going to say any of that yeah, yeah. <laughs> no one's going to say oh we had a good time but i don't think we fully unlocked what the play is all about you know no one's going to risk saying that before it's all closed yeah. and everyone's moved
0: on and we're a small industry too i guess too very small yeah yeah do you um recall the first words that you spoke has anybody ever told you the first words that i spoke in, in life yes in life have your parents <laughs> said the first words you said were.
1: no idea no idea
0: (laughs) mama dada um what about your favorite sounds what are they Mm. Hmm.
1: i tend to like human sounds so breath uh, things like that 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 are quite evocative uh (laughs) and sort of visceral i think they're always fun
0: to play with Mm. why does taylor swift know your name (laughs)
1: <laughs> I don't know if she does know my name. Oh, really? She would know the name of Belvoir Street and the, the fact that we uh, launched that campaign desperately trying to get her permission. But I don't know if she would know my name personally, but maybe, you never
0: know. So this was, the, you were working on the play 17. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, by, uh, uh, escapes me now. Uh, Matthew Wittens. Matthew Wittett, yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> um, and so what's the story? You were was seeking... So, Performance rights for a particular song.
1: Yeah. So there's a moment in the show where there's this big dance sequence. And, you know, the the show revolves around the idea of of actors who are, in our case, were all sort of in their mid-70s playing teenagers at the age 17, which is a great setup. And, and these actors were phenomenal. They were so agile and so willing to dive into it. Uh, And so we'd been rehearsing this dance piece and we'd we'd tried a few different songs along the way, but we'd really settled on this particular track and it was Taylor Swift's... uh, God, what's the name of the song? (laughs) Taylor Swift's... Ah, Shake It Off. That's what it was called. You can tell I don't listen to Taylor Swift boy in my regular life.
0: That's fun. Now you if this was your podcast, you would spend hours I surgically spend removing hours your, hours your surgically, thought process then.
1: I would I might remove the whole question <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> yeah, It's interesting. I, I should show you the um, like the editing files one day of and the fact probably have one in my laptop still it's just like all these tiny tiny cuts tiny just everywhere (laughs) surgery as you (laughs) say yeah so we needed this particular track they really fell in love with it in rehearsals and more importantly we'd spend a lot of time on it and just the the idea of going back to the drawing board with days to spare before we were due to go in front of an audience and try and redo the whole thing just really didn't fill us with a lot of joy so we thought, why not have a crack at a backdoor action that might get us the rights? Um, APRA, bless their hearts, are a, a incredibly overworked and under-resourced organization. And particularly back then, uh, they didn't move fast on things. And sometimes you just felt, actually, if we just go straight to the publisher, we will get better results. And in this case, if we just go straight to the artist, we'll get better results. And we were lucky. We were lucky that it came through and had the, uh, the great sort of side effect of also bringing a lot of publicity to the show pre-opening night which I'm sure Belvoir was very appreciative of
0: yeah (laughs) what was it like growing up in West Australia in the Pilbara region?
1: Uh, it was great Uh, it's, it's a very adventurous place to grow up I think as a kid you sort of have to make your own fun you know I remember when Google Earth first came out that software first came out I was living over in the UK at that point and I thought, oh, I wonder I wonder what Wickham looks like, which is the town where I grew up. I thought, well, what happens if I look it up on Google Maps? Look it up and, you know, the town pops up in the satellite and, and I zoomed out and it's this red earth, red earth, red earth, red earth. And you're like, wow, this really was in the middle of nowhere. And back then it was probably even smaller than it is these days after the industry boom there. So tiny town, it, it was just a mining outpost. It's a port uh, town for what was then Road River Iron. Uh, My dad worked for them in uh, PR and uh, yeah, it was a great place to grow up. You were just running wild in the red earth and spin effects and make your own adventures. There was a little ghost town called Cossack next door. That was this beautiful old colonial town that had been abandoned, um, that every year hosted the Cossack Fair, which was lots of fun and the highlights, including train rides where uh, a little ride on lawnmower pulled a whole bunch of uh, oil... Containers that have been cut open to form carriages and painted bright colours. It was fun, and every year we would go and travel and explore, like the Kimberleys, and climb gorges and swim in rivers and fish for barramundi and all that kind of thing. It was yeah, quite an exciting place to
0: be. So were any other kids in town?
1: There were quite a few. Um, yeah, and you know everyone sort of knows each other in, in small towns like that. So yeah, we, we were all good friends. A few close friends that we had that lived on our street, you know, sort of wander over to each other's houses and hang out or go for a swim on a hot day.
0: Mm. Uh, and what about school? Was there a, a school in the town or you had to travel to?
1: No, there was a school in the town, at least for the uh, school wage range that I, I'm at. I, I was at. I don't know yeah, I don't know what's, what's there now or even what was there then in terms of high school education. But certainly there was a primary school and a kindergarten. Um, yeah, so I was there up until I think year two or year three. And then we uh, left to move back to Perth, but via a year, almost a year and a half, really, of traveling around Australia and living out of a, a caravan and doing a distance education, which was a really interesting experience as well. Uh, so a lot of travel, and then finally sort of came back to Perth to settle there for my
0: kind of, you know, later years as I were becoming a young adult. Um, I, sound. I'm interested in sound because that's what yes. our, our topic is today. What were the sounds that you remember from the Pilbara region? So I always credit growing up
1: in the Pilbara more for the absence of sound. I think what that really teaches you is is what vast open space sounds like and what, yeah, that that idea of this is a big, big empty space and it's not a quiet city street empty space. It's a, there's no buildings, there's no mountains even necessarily. You're in this big big vast area and sound can just travel there's nothing for it to reflect off or absorb into necessarily and that's a really specific idea of what sound is it's, it's 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 a very unique uh experience i suppose to to be within that uh and i think that was a big part of it i think that's that taught me a big lesson about how you then go into a tiny little cramped theater and try and recreate the idea of this vast open space which is actually something we'd have to do all the time as sound designers in theaters so that was a big thing that i kind of credit to
0: is is actually the absence of sound and, and so, so you get it sound, sounds like cicadas are just amplified because there's nothing place exactly. to compete yeah,
1: with. Exactly. Everything, yeah, everything is amplified. Even your own breath and your own heartbeat and things like that. Uh, you know, your footfalls, uh, the crunch of dirt or rock under your feet. Is, that's all, it's so it, much more. Obvious. That's why you should
0: say that I, I, go, I grew up in a little country town in Victoria. Yeah. I, I go home to visit mum, and um, at night it is so quiet, it's unnerving. <laughs> And all I can hear is the pulsing in my head you know sometimes it keeps me awake, it's so loud yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. because there's nothing to compete with
1: well, Have you ever read stories about people who go into those uh, proper soundproof chambers at universities and, and the few you know organizations that have built their own but uh, yeah, apparently it's the same thing. if you're in there those those places actually register in the negative values on the decibel scale they're that quiet uh, and if you're in there for long enough, you' become so aware of the sound of your own body apparently that for some people it can kind of drive them slightly crazy and they have to get out because they just become overwhelmed. They start hearing things they like hear the flowing of blood in their blood vessels, not just their heartbeat but the actual flowing of the blood, the fluid itself, which is
0: crazy. <laughs> Extraordinary. So theatre, where, where were you first exposed to theatre and, and realised that this could potentially be mm. an occupation? I...
1: I, my first I mean as a kid you know you, particularly growing up where I did you you have limited entertainment options so you know you're the closest you get to theater particularly for young people is you know going to see Humphrey Bear in concert or the Wiggles or something like that
0: whoever's touring, if they yeah. come up
1: to Caratha yeah <laughs> uh, my first memory of seeing a theater production in, in the sense that <laughs> of what we're sort of thinking I think would be there's a stage production of the Hobbit of all things. That came to Perth, uh, yeah, Lord knows when it was, I have no idea what year it was, I was fairly young. And they had this amazing puppet for Smaug the Dragon, I remember. It was very exciting, particularly as a kid, to see what theatre could be, that it could be quite filmic. And that's i probably stuck with me, I think, because very much my aesthetic is about trying to bring this kind of filmic idea of music and sound to the stage, um, but that's probably my earliest memory of it. And then when I went to high school, like lots of people, I uh, actually primary school before that as well, got into drama and doing plays. And I remember my primary school didn't have any. They had a music program that was great, but they didn't have any kind of drama program to speak of. So I convinced my teacher to let us put on a play one year, and uh, and and then in high school I got into doing that kind of stuff. And I guess, like a lot of people that get into the technical side of theatre production, I moved into the behind the scenes a lot. I was very interested in, in the politics and the uh, equipment and the how a show is put together. And I was on stage a bit, but I think I probably found myself gravitating to the backstage disciplines, as it as it, is, as it were. And uh, yeah, I think I don't know how I ended up where I am, to be honest, because I I've always been a musician. That part of me has always been from the earliest age. I've had a very strong kind of musical inclination and uh, that thread's always been there. But with theatre, it took me a while to find my way there. I after high school, I was sure that I wanted to be a doctor and I uh, ended up taking a gap year and I traveled to the UK and I worked there and lived there for about um, 18 months or so. And then I came back and I started doing a a medicine degree at at the University of WA. Did that for about a year before realizing that I still had itchy feet and wanted to go traveling again. So I thought I'll defer my degree and I'll go and work an office job and save up some money so I can go traveling and I'll come back and and keep at it. Uh, And in that time I kind of started a band and I started doing, uh, I'm not professional kayaking, but semi-professional uh, kayaking, whitewater kayaking, and, uh, and just kind of carved out a little niche in Perth that I was really enjoying and a lot of music involved in that.
0: What were the instruments you played?
1: Uh, I trained cl- uh, primarily as a trombone player. Um, that was my main instrument. I did learn piano initially. I actually ended up giving it up to focus on trombone. So I, I'm only a fairly average pianist, but yeah, trombone was my main instrument. And then when I started playing in a band, we were sort of, um, (laughs) kind of Eastern European folk inspired. So there were lots of, you know, accordions and mandolins and all sorts of strange instruments like that. So I picked up a few bizarre little things on the side as part of that. Uh, yeah. And then... I kind of ended up not touching my trombone for a long time and when I went travelling to the UK to live there I, I you know, put it up on a shelf and almost never got it down again I played it a bit when I had my band but it's funny I, I credit becoming a composer and be able to, to become the composer I am now certainly with... Having left all that behind, I think it took going away and clearing my brain of all the kind of musical theory and all the stuff you're taught as a music student, which unfortunately includes a lot of your musicianship as well. But in terms of the theory side in particular, I think you know you come back at it and you don't have a head full of, oh, this is how so-and-so did, this is Beethoven, this is Bach. If I play this chord, then here are the chords that might sound nice next to it. All of that goes. And it just becomes about using your ears and you play a chord and you go, what sounds right? And what sounds right after this? And what works for this moment?
0: You can respond organically. Yeah. yeah.
1: Which is exactly how scoring for theatre works. It's, it's incredibly organic. And I think you tend to see people coming from more formal music backgrounds, like people who studied at the con or something like that, actually tend to really struggle with writing music for theatre. I mean, conversely, I would really struggle probably to write a symphony for an orchestra to play. But Uh, Yeah, something about working within that dramatic context where you're telling a story that already exists and your music is just one element of that. Uh, And you have to be able to work in kind of harmony with everything else that's going on in the show. I think that's a really unique skill and you've got to be super organic and super flexible about how you approach that. Because of course, you know, unlike scoring for film, you don't have a nice little scene handed to you that's two minutes and it's always going to be two minutes and the climax is always going to be at a minute 52. You get this weird flexible beast where someone might jump two pages one night or someone might be tired and go a minute longer the next and you've got to have music that can kind of respond to that, which is, yeah, an added challenge. This is not just about writing the content. It's also thinking about how is this actually operated? How is this integrated?
0: uh, Which is a whole (laughs) challenge in itself. So your musicianship has, has definitely supported you in your study of sound and, and exploration of what's possible.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think uh, when I came to Sydney to study at NIDA, I I th- guess I knew that there would be a strong uh, pull towards uh, doing sound design. I, I did the technical production course. So, you know, you sort of faced with either stage management, lighting design, or sound design, or technical lighting and sound. And I sort of thought, you know, sound design, that's probably where I'm going to go, given my background. And it didn't even occur to me that composition was a pathway in theatre. It didn't even cross my mind. It wasn't until I got there and started to do it started to see the opportunity and just kind of jump into it that I realized what what it could become and it sort of became my focus from the second year of my three years at NIDA onwards really Uh, but that first year I didn't really understand where it would lead me I think I kind of had all my options open and thought oh you know this is this is a helpful thing that supports the sound design but in fact now it's almost the opposite now (laughs) sound design is the helpful thing that supports composition for me how'd you hear about NIDA so, well, this sort of goes back to my story about getting into theatre. So I came back, uh, I'd been working in this office job, I'd been saving up, thinking I'd go travelling. I deferred my uh, uni degree and I just came to the point where I realised I hadn't done anything about any of that stuff. And I was still working, I was still enjoying my little, um, you know, routine that I'd carved out in Perth. So I thought, look, it's time I did something about that. And, I, and so... You know, I had the medical degree on standby, but I thought, oh, I want to explore this other love that I've always had, the arts and of theatre in particular. So it was quite late in the year and I'd, I'd missed the application deadlines for just about everywhere. But NIDA had extended, the production course had extended its its deadline. And to be honest, I hadn't seen theatre, let alone been involved in making theatre for so long at that point, really, really long. And I how thought... Old, how old were you? You're... Oh, I would have been 20, 21, right. 21 I think. Yep. yeah. And, uh, yeah, I thought, look, I'm going to need a bit of, bit of a lead up to this. I'm going to need a bit of practice to get back into the what I'm doing and what this is all about, what this Theatre Lark is. So what I thought was I'll apply to NIDA since the window of opportunity was still there. And I'll find out what it is, what they expect, what that process is. And I fully thought that I would then, you know, not get in. And then the next year I would go away and apply for everywhere, including WAPA, which is my, you know, hometown option. And uh, and sure enough, I went and I got through the final audition, uh, auditions, the interview round. And Nida got back to me and said, it was a really great application, but you didn't get in. But we encourage you to try again next year. And I was like, great, that was exactly what I planned. So I went back about my life as normal and thought, okay, next year I'm gonna start seeing some theater and looking into all that stuff and just preparing myself. And then uh, February rolled around and I was working in my office and got a call. Uh, at my desk and it was NIDA and they basically said look someone hasn't showed up on day one Uh, you're our sort of first reserve candidate there's a spot for you but you have to decide within 24 hours and you have to be in Sydney ready to start within a week so and here I am over in Perth completely unprepared for this moment so I always said no I went back and forth quite a lot and in the end I thought you know what I might not get this chance again and why not I was kind of used to uh packing up my life and running off on an adventure. So I thought, well, this is no different. So yeah, so within 24 hours, I'd said yes. And somehow within a week, I would managed to find someone to take my room, take my job, and I was... In Sydney, yeah, walking in the doors of NIDA. That's
0: great. The more I talk to people on this show, I realize that, you know, so many people find their way into the industry through happy accidents. You know, just like, just like that. Somebody didn't turn up, so yeah. Nate Edmondson gets yeah. his chance.
1: I do think that's it. I think there's there's two kind of primary pathways into the industry. One is happy accident and passion, and the other is uh, passion combined with a, a good dose of nepotism, which is uh, <laughs>
0: very,
1: more common than you realize, I think, yes. when you're starting out.
0: So, what do you have to do for your application?
1: Ah, uh, it's probably changed these days. But back then, you had to make a you had to, you had to pick a play. They gave you three or four options. Uh, I picked the Cherry Orchard, and uh, they make you build a f- uh, model box, like a full, fully functional, full size model box, and uh, write kind of an essay about how you'd approach the various design elements and how your model box works. And then you go in and you bring your model box into an interview in person and kind of talk through it and yeah that's that's more or less it really and right. then they go away and deliberate I guess and yeah. choose who they like
0: so and what and what do you study within the course? I mean obviously you were saying that you don't get lighting design sound design mm. stage management
1: yeah for the production course they are the three primary streams with stage management by far and away being the most dominant dominant of those uh, yeah <laughs> I feel like I'm kind of ratting out NIDA now saying this, uh, and I teach there a bit myself now. Back then, the production course wasn't great, particularly for audio. and They didn't have...
0: Was it new? Was it still no, developing? It, uh, or uh, just well, going through a hiccup?
1: Well, yes and no. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk on this particular topic later, no doubt, because it's one of my you know, soapbox things. But the technical audio world has undergone a very rapid evolution in the last just over a decade now. So I think, in a way, yes, back then there was a lot that was new and had very suddenly appeared and I don't think the course had caught up with in terms of what had to be taught and how it was taught and and the resources in terms of buying the equipment they need and Mm. having all that to work with. So, yeah, there wasn't really a a sound component per se. We sort of learnt how to (laughs) roll a cable and how to plug in a mic to a speaker and use an analogue console and that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah, I, I... Knew that I wanted to get into it, so I went away and sort of taught myself QLab Lab and taught myself editing software, uh, and kind of got into it that way. But the the course was fairly surface level, and, and they didn't teach you anything about the creative side of audio. It was there was nothing about the psychology of sound, about any of that kind of stuff, the history of sound even. So. You learn a lot about the history of theatre, you had a bit of um, subsidiary studies, which you shared with the acting courses and other courses in the building. But yeah, in terms of specifically audio, there's not a lot. And to this day, things have improved a huge amount, but I think it's still probably the weakest or the most uh, overlooked part of the course. And it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, of course, you know, there's not a lot of demand for it because people don't know about it. So they don't put a lot of resources into it, but without putting resources into it and promoting it as an option, people aren't going to know that they might want to do it. So it's a sort of weird circular problem, I think, that, that still exists there, but it's much better these
0: days. So three-year course? Three-year course, yeah. And then you're specializing in third year, I guess, in your chosen... You can, it's
1: funny, I don't know why it works this way. Actually, no, I do know why it works this way. So when when you're pursuing lighting design, there's this extra third step in the middle. So you start off as a, a general kind of technician. And then, and that's first year. Second year, you graduate up to being a head electrician, which is, you know, you're essentially programming the lighting desk and doing- When you say electrician,
0: are you doing some sort of apprenticeship with the- No, no no, as well? no, 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 just no, no. a term for the- Just, t- just t- a term, yeah, yeah,
1: And then third year, you graduate up to being a designer, but for sound design, there is no middle step. And the same is true of the industry. There is no one programming your sound for you. Uh, if you're designing it, you're also programming it, you're doing all that yourself. So you can do sound designs in second year. So from second year, if you were interested in audio, you could actually start specializing from there, So which was good. I kind of had a bit of a head start in that way. So by by the time I was in third year, I was out doing shows in the industry already. In fact, my first main stage show, which was at Griffin, was well, halfway through my third year, um, which I was very lucky that my course staff at that time trusted me and allowed me to do that because they technically had a rule that you weren't allowed to do outside gigs, particularly if I interfered with your study, but I promised them I would, you know, turn my essays in on time and still fulfill my course requirements and be able to juggle it, which in itself is a good training for the uh, real thing.
0: <laughs> so how did you get a gig at Griffin? Did they come looking for at students at the course or did you know the, know somebody who was directing? No,
1: I directing? knew someone. I knew the composer on the gig, actually, um, Steve Francis. He's a good friend, but he he was then at that time a, a mentor, I suppose. Um, so I'd done some secondments with him in third year. Um, and I got to know him that way, and he knew that he needed someone to come on and take the sound design uh, of the show over from him because he couldn't, he had something else on, I think. So, yeah, he, he kindly put my name out there. And I guess it, certainly in that time, there wasn't a lot of people out in the industry vying for those jobs. And, and you could argue there's still comparatively few, but there's certainly been a bit of an explosion as people have finally caught up to what's possible and you know these new technologies and new avenues of uh, of uh, design have sort of opened up for for people that are composers or audio you know specialists i suppose but back then i was lucky i was one of very few names so i think it got me a few doors opened a bit early
0: <laughs> how, how do you define sound hmm <laughs> it's 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 waves isn't it i mean it's yeah yeah pressure yeah. waves Yeah, pressure waves, pressure waves.
1: I mean, we're used to... I feel like I'm delivering a lecture
0: now. Well, that's fantastic. (laughs) I mean, it still confuses me that sort of... Well,
1: we're used to seeing sound represented as, you know, the kind of classic squiggly squiggly line, the sort of oscilloscope um, squiggle, uh, which is a great way of visualising sound, but it's actually a little bit misleading as to how it works. Uh, So, yeah, as you say, sound is essentially... I I would almost describe it as like pulses, like sort of waves, but think of it more as like energy that's that's actually moving through matter, so being the air, being your body in some cases, um, at various frequencies, I which translates to various speeds essentially. Uh, yeah,
0: which is all received by the eardrum. it's all received by the, the eardrum, and then
1: uh, and then translated into uh, yeah into meaning and into understanding the brain, and it's it's pretty phenomenal really that that we can understand each other and, and calculate sound the way we can. It's sort of, so many things have to line up in evolution and then... And these our bodies, articulators,
0: our teeth and mm, tongue and lips uh, exactly. are making these sounds. So our brain
1: says, we want to say this, I want to say, hi, Peter. And my brain then knows exactly what to tell my the muscles of my my mouth, my throat, my tongue. Everything has to coordinate just perfectly to create the exact right pressure wave with the exact right frequency range that then hits your ears then have to be able to interpret that and translate that at the other end all within this sort of blink of an eye. It's pretty phenomenal.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you said you studied a bit of history within the course there. Um, I've mm. been doing a little bit of research in preparation for you also. <laughs> uh, the first use of recorded sound, did you know this was um, a phonograph playing a baby's cry? In 1890 in London. Oh, <laughs> you read the same
1: books. That is correct. Fantastic. Well, we assume that's correct for lack of any other recorded uh, information otherwise. And yeah.
0: then, then the great actor manager Herbert Tree used recordings in a London production about 16 years later Mm. um, in a tragedy called nero yeah um but but up to then i suppose you know the the sound um uh, artists on on shows were really just stage managers that specialized in in effects Mm. and we see that a lot in you know that that fabulous film the dresser yes um, (laughs) where the actors are sort of creating thunder and lightning and Mm. drums and
1: it's interesting, I, there's, there's a particular school of thought that's now thankfully uh, growing old and, uh, and departing us, <laughs> but that says that theatre should be, shouldn't tell people how to think or feel, you know, should be very kind of reserved and it, it's pretty, very Australian in particular I think that we developed this, this idea of what theatre should be, um, particularly when dealing with the classics. And a lot of that was just responding to what was possible. And back then it wasn't possible to do what we can do now. And it, a lot of people subsequently think of of concepts, particularly like underscoring, where like complex musical treatment of performance as something that's out of the wheelhouse of theater and, and solely reserved for film and TV. But in fact, of course, film and TV took it from theater, but they could run with it to places that we couldn't because they had the technology and, and they had the investment in that technology to do that. But Sound and music goes hand in hand from story. It it was storytelling from the very, 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 very beginning of our species and and how we evolved. And in fact, so human beings, I always find this really interesting. In fact, one of uh, I think essentially the only land-based animal that has song, so birds and other animals that that live in different environments have song but we're the only land-based animal really to have song Uh, there may be exceptions to this so please fact check me if you want Um, but what they theorize is that as we evolved and got upright and lost our fur and our muscles and our sharp teeth and our sharp claws and blah blah blah, that as a defense mechanism against predators one of our best options was to congregate together in in a clump and simultaneously sing or chant uh, and and stomp and use rhythm as well to essentially scare away the predator by appearing like a larger, more threatening organism and making it look like it was going to be a bit too much work for getting a bite out of us. So that's sort of the earliest beginnings of this thing was purely survival. Uh, And then of course, a lot of it started to evolve through religion and religion sort of evolved from the basic ceremonies that started to appear around burial and burial came about because of the need to uh, remove the dead from being able to be predated upon by our potential predators. So they didn't want to leave the dead lying around like they might've, you know, (laughs) once upon a time, because if you, you know, a lion or whatever it might be, got a taste of that, then you potentially unpicked all of that good work you'd done by singing and chanting and throwing rocks in time with each other in scaring them away so they started burying their dead as a way of of removing the ability for the predator to even get the taste for human flesh at all Uh, and around that started to grow ceremony and that sort of became our earliest forms of of religion when it coupled with basic ideas of spiritualism and of course religion has been hugely impactful in the evolution of art of all sorts of art and architecture Uh, and music being a very very big part of that uh, so yeah, all of this kind of like really feeds back to these really early ideas. When I teach sound design uh, to students, I teach at a few different places. Uh, I always start the lesson with, we talk about the physics of it, but then before we move on to anything else, the next thing we talk about is the psychology of sound. It's like, why does it affect us the way it does? And it all comes back to that same concept of like, it's because this is how our brains have been wired over all of these tens of thousands of years to respond to particular things in particular ways for reasons that ultimately boil down to survival or used to boil down to survival. But that's all those instincts are kind of stuck back there now. (laughs) So when we use a low drone in a horror movie to make the audience tense and know that something's about to happen, that's tapping into that really primal instinct that says, oh, low frequency sound can only be produced by something large and something large is something threatening, i.e. a bear or an earthquake or a roaring sea or a thunderclap. And so, you know, we have this primal association with low frequency sounds uh, as being something that stimulates this fight or flight instinct in us because that's what we have associated that with. Mm. Whereas birdsong is a super powerful sound because it reminds us of when the world is calm, when it's safe and when the birds are singing, we know that we're in safe hands, it's when they stop singing that we've got to get worried. They say that if you are hearing the sound of birds when you first meet someone, you're something like 80% more likely to make friends with that person and make them think positive thoughts about you, not make them, but they will think positive of you just because they're hearing birdsong, because that's relaxing their brain so much that they're gonna be way more receptive to these positive ideas of friendship and what you might be offering them in that moment. So if you ever wanna manipulate someone to being a friend or taking a deal or treating you kindly. Just uh, bring a little pocket speaker and play some birdsong.
0: <laughs> it's that like, you know, the, the joy of a baby laughing and then the horror of that baby crying on a plane.
1: Mm.
0: <laughs> yes. Don't we love that sound? Yes.
1: Well, another interesting story, if you if you like these silly sound related stories, I love but, them. Uh, they we did a <laughs> they did a study uh, looking into airplane food and how airplane food was just so um, determinedly bland all the time. And they did these taste tests, and they'll do taste tests on the ground, and the, and the food would taste fine, you know, plain food, but flavorful. Then they'd go up to altitude in context and find that it suddenly tasted really bland, and suddenly that same sensation, these same people tasting the same food in that new context, just couldn't taste it in the same way. And they initially thought that altitude affected your taste buds, perhaps, in some way. And and it is true to say there is a very mild effect on your taste buds that altitude can cause. But actually what they discovered was the culprit was the noise of the plane engine in the cabin. That sort of, you know, incessant roar along with your babies crying and all the rest was actually overwhelming your auditory senses so much that it actually deadened your ability to taste. So your brain essentially has this sort of limited bandwidth for processing sensory data. And so when it's overwhelmed in one area, suddenly the others are are kind of blunted or muted as a result. And the same is really true of theater. I, I I tell that story to my students for that reason, because you've got to, as a designer, be faced with those same situations where you'll go in and you'll be in a tech and you'll be seeing the set for the first time, the lighting for the first time. And you might get to a moment where you suddenly go, oh, there's a lot going on here that we might not have seen in the rehearsal room when everything was sounding great and working well with the cast. And suddenly it just doesn't work because you've got so much else going on that it's actually just overwhelming. And that at the heart of that, the most important thing, the text is just getting buried by everything else that's going on. Uh, and a really good designer has to sort of know when
0: to be the one to be like,
1: all right, I'm stepping back from the edge now because it's just,
0: we're swamping the work at this point. Uh, sound design is probably one of the youngest uh, disciplines mm. in the fields of stagecraft. Do, do you know the first person to be called a stage designer, a sound designer? Uh, I know that the first time it was
1: sort of articulated in the in a kind of modern sense was in uh, 1980. I think it was 1980 in uh, on Broadway in a musical theater kind of.
0: Uh, yes, sets. that's recognised at the Tony Awards, I think, in that sort of mm. capacity. My, my uh, reading was a fellow called Dan Dugan working with three stereo tape decks, routed to ten louds or routed. Did you say routed or routed? Uh, I say routed. Routed? <laughs> I don't know where I've got routed from. Um, working <laughs> with three stereo tape decks, routed to ten loudskeeper zones uh, during the 68 69 season of the American Conservatory Theatre <laughs> in San Francisco.
1: Yeah, right. It's great. Well, you you pick up uh, old editions of things like like an old Tennessee Williams or something. And uh, if it's an old enough edition of the play, in the front, you'll actually see, alongside all the references of, like, the first production was performed by so-and-so, you'll actually be given a reference for where they got their sound effects from. It'll be the so-and-so library, and that'll give you an address. It'll be like, you know, Unit A 29, you know, Bleecker Street, New York, and, and it will be the name of the, the designer or the recording artist, essentially, that, who had these effects that they originally put together, which is kind of
0: So it'll be crazy. on some sort of record.
1: Yeah, and they would yeah. have gone out, and so I guess other people doing those productions would then be able to go and borrow the same tapes same and town. put together their own sound design. Yeah.
0: How do you define sound design? Uh, look. What's the job description?
1: I always say to my students, and I remind myself of this frequently, that you're responsible for the, the auditory experience, the sonic experience of the audience from the moment they walk into your venue, into the doors of the auditorium, to the moment they leave. So you're responsible for how the playback audio is shaped, so sound effects, ambiences, be they naturalistic or abstract, you're responsible for any musical content. Uh, If there's microphones in the production, you're responsible for how they sound, how they're mixed, any effects that might be treated on them, the kind of the uh, purpose of them, I suppose, and as to why you've used them and what you're aiming for there. But you're also responsible for things like the air conditioning, you know, is it too loud? Is it broken somewhere? Like, do you need to have that fixed? Is a moving light fan on the wrong setting and making a whole lot of noise? Is a hazer unit? the lighting designers is put above the audience, uh, drowning out a particular sound. All of that is part of your purview as a sound designer. And it takes a long time and a lot of confidence building to understand <laughs> that you are allowed to challenge certain things that you might otherwise have assumed are just sort of baked into the theatre, into the structure of the building, or into the you know things that aren't your department. But in fact, I say that from the moment the audience walk in that door, you are responsible for what they're hearing. And if they're hearing... A shitty air conditioning system then you know that may not be your fault but you should be trying to fix that.
0: <laughs> mm. What are the tools of your trade? I imagine there's a bit of technology involved. There's a lot of technology <laughs> a lot of technology
1: and I'm really not a technical person I sometimes marvel that I'm doing this job. Uh, so first of all you need well let's go I and mean, go right back to the basics you need a good microphone or several good microphones uh, you need to be able to go out and capture your own recordings. Um, I have a little portable Zoom recorder, which is a very popular piece of equipment that lots of filmmakers and sound designers alike carry. That's invaluable. You never know when you need to suddenly record a front of house announcement in the green room before a show goes up in you know, 20 minutes time. You need to kind of be able to have that on the fly uh, setup available to you. You need a good laptop, a really good pair of headphones. Uh, uh, You need a whole lot of software. So you need a good editing program. If you're composing, you need a whole lot of tools that are revolving around that. Um, You need uh, sample libraries, things like that to to score with. Um, Yeah, then you need a program called QLab, which is probably the heart of modern sound design. And that software is probably a big reason that, that sound design has been able to take off the way it has in the last few years Um, or last decade I suppose now. So that allows you to play the sound back in the theatre. So now through that software you can take a digital audio send that could be 50 different channels of audio information, could be more than that. And then you can actually translate that into 50 different speakers in your theatre. Now, that's a big part of what's changed in terms of sound design, that now we're not tethered to CD players or reel-to-reel players or tape players. Uh, Suddenly you can have a whole lot more audio information and you can have a whole lot more control over it, Um, which is a big part of the job. So a lot of of the time you're sitting behind a desk with your head in your laptop, uh, and then you go into a theater and you sit behind the production desk with your head in a laptop. And sometimes you gotta remind yourself to, go out and get some fresh air or stand up and experience the show from a different vantage point. But uh, yeah, there is a lot of technology involved, a lot of computer-based work.
0: Are there a lot of sounds now available through libraries, etc.? You do often have to go out and make your own sounds, like whether it be some Mm. bones breaking or (laughs) a car accident, or you can generally find what you want in a library?
1: Yeah, I very rarely go out and record my own effects. You only do that if there's something very specific... Or very performative that you need kind of to sound a particular way yeah otherwise there are so many libraries out there um many that you can access for free um i discovered yeah it's there's a lot of resources out there so so you know why waste time creating something that already exists i'd yeah. say but i also have a rule that i don't tend to put a sound design into a show without having done something to it whether it's just EQing it or editing it in some way just so you've made it your own but you haven't actually recorded the bass source sound.
0: <laughs> What's the process once you land a gig? Uh,
1: oh,
0: it, read the script, I guess. And... Yeah, yeah
1: well, well, you would be shocked at how many offers I get where they don't even include the script. Right. They'll say, oh, they're, we're doing this play, and, and this here is, are the this dates. this is the world. Yeah, and sometimes they don't even tell you what play, they'll just say, here are the dates, and this is the director that wants to work with you. And you'll get nothing else, you'd be like, and you would be like, well, what if, what if I hate the play? It's not just about being available, surely. It's about like, you know, am I a good fit for this work? And am I interested in this work? You know, no one necessarily wants to do, I don't know, a Midsummer Night's Dream 20 times on a professional stage. You know, as as a designer, you're probably going to say no around the, you know, maybe the fourth time if you really uh, got a lot of persistence. But yeah, generally, if you'd hope that you'd be given a script, uh, you'd hope that you're part of a whole bunch of pre-production meetings. Unfortunately, that's, as I said, not always the case. I think I do a lot of advocacy uh, around the industry and around my role in particular, uh, because it is it has changed a lot. And now scoring and sound design is such a huge part of productions and such an enormous expectation. And you really need to be included in, in the design process like just because you're not a visual designer. the what the set is what it looks like what the particular design direction the show has gone in is still pertinent to you it still matters it's still going to affect how things sound it's also going to affect where you might put speakers what kind of extra demands there might be are they going to need to be on mic are they going to is there a working radio that needs to be made to play you know mobile phones that ring all that stuff is really important to kind of have a head start on so ideally you're in those conversations early on so before you've got to the room you have a good sense of what the world is, what the design direction is that you you want to go in and that the director's happy with. And then you can kind of be entering rehearsals with what I would call a palette of sound. So a whole bunch of sound effects that kind of are in the the world, in the territory, and a whole bunch of instruments that you can start composing with that sort of fit together that might be the sound of that world musically.
0: There's such a broad uh, number of disciplines that employ sound design, film, television, video, games... Recording, reproduction, live performance, sound art. Um, do you do any of those outside of theatre or do you like to uh, focus on theatre?
1: I Mostly focus on theatre. <laughs> theatre is a very demanding beast, despite being the one that pays you the least out of all of those other things. It demands a lot of time, so I don't often have much time to do those other projects. I've done a bit of short film work, even a bit of like very small-scale TV work. Uh, I yeah, occasionally get to do those sort of things, um, even like installation sound. I've recorded um, voice samples for a uh, audio app before for a, a little language learning app. You, you get sort of strange gigs like that on the side uh, when you can fit them in. But I've always said that I want to focus on theatre before I move into the, the screen world. I think it's a very... It's a very different industry, there's a different set of contacts there, it works in a different way. I think you really kind of have to properly focus on it and and almost start afresh. Uh, And I'm not quite ready to start to move out of theatre just yet, I've still got a few goals to kick.
0: I I read also that the influence of film and television on playwriting is seeing plays being increasingly um, developed with shorter scenes. Uh, which is difficult to achieve in <laughs> in set design. So there's a greater reliance on sound design to mm-hmm. sort of create those worlds within. Yeah, players. for sure.
1: I think there's, the, generally there's a much more cinematic aesthetic in theatre these days, which I personally think is great. But it is hard. It's 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 not hard to write a, a you know a film level score for a theatre show. It just takes time, and it, sometimes you're doing productions that just don't have adequate rehearsal time. So there's a constant juggling act between the expectation and the possibility that you have at your disposal, and the actual resources that you have, and it's it's really hard. Where where you know lighting designers, for example, walk out of the venue, you know, in tech week, and and they're closing the door behind them, and all their lights, their lighting desk, everything's back there, so they they can go home and you know sort of switch off, even though they might have a million things to do or a million things to think about. Whereas a composer or a sound designer. You're going home and it's hard to say no if the director says hey can you go and rewrite this you know overture because we've shortened the transition time by 20 minutes or 20 minutes 20 seconds uh you know you can do that and and you sort of have to do that so you do spend a lot of time after hours um by after hours i mean sort of you know post midnight uh doing work and that's hard because that's that's the kind of stuff that's invisible and i think producers don't see that um as in you know they're not actively seeing that Directors aren't necessarily actively seeing that. There is this sort of magic that happens with sound where you turn up the next day and somehow you've summoned an orchestra and you've rewritten this really complex piece of music and done 20 other sound cues and it's ready to go first thing in the morning. And people just kind of go, oh, great. And I think you almost shoot yourself in the foot because the better you are, the quicker you are. The quicker you are, the more people, I think, just assume that it must have been easy to do because you managed to pull it off, they go, oh, well, that mustn't be so bad then. But it's an enormous amount of work and it's very hard to make people understand just how many hours go into it. And of course, like, unlike, like, again, I hate to do the comparison thing, but other disciplines, particularly lighting design being the other kind of technical design discipline, you don't you have so many more deliverables as, as they would say in the rehearsal period you know you're expected to be feeding in sound and music into rehearsals almost from day one so not only are you expected to be in the room 90 percent of the time but you're also expected to be putting together all this really complex uh work heavy stuff uh ahead of tech week to go in and sort of do all that and then of course as i said all the after hours that go into it so there's a lot of invisible work i suppose that goes into to putting it all together and um, at the end of the day it's great we have we have an infinite control of sound just about you know we, we have full control over the the audible spectrum of sound so if, if someone turns to you and says can you create the sound of a magical 3d vortex spinning in the middle of stage that's you know spitting out electricity and power and then disappears in this flash of smoke you know something crazy like that you can only say yes, because you, yes, you can. You can absolutely create that sound. Even in the crappiest theater with the worst, most janky equipment, you can pull something like that off. Whereas, you know, a lot of other departments, and you mentioned yeah, scenic design and things like that, have limitations because you know, you've got to sort of physically build everything. Everything has a physical component. Audio doesn't. I mean, yes, you need a speaker at some point in your system, but outside of that you know you've got the whole of the air in the theater to kind of move your sound waves through so there's really nothing restricting you and that's that's amazing having that freedom is amazing but it also means that you've got to be careful about how you work because you can get lost down a rabbit hole of infinite possibilities if you're not careful
0: what's the most bizarre sound you've heard to source oh Uh,
1: I, I, probably, I think the more bizarre ones that I would, would answer this with are actually ones where I've had to make, make it myself, but u- utilizing different kind of sourced materials, probably Mr. Man, actually, yeah. <laughs> that uh, we worked on very briefly together would, would be up there where you have to do something like design the sound of a man beating to death, a woman out in a field with a tape recorder that is recording the sound that you are hearing played back in the theater. Or kicking a dog to death, you know, and you're sitting up at 3am in the dark, sort of listening to the sound of horrified dog wails and things, thinking, what am I doing with my life?
0: Oh, and marrying all those sounds. I mean, yes, that's right. I was the voice of that man kicking that dog. I just, I just had to yell at the dog. You had to go and kill it.
1: Yes, yes, I had to murder it. And then poor Tom had to uh, be part of that every night as well. Yeah, so I think you definitely get some really bizarre sounds once you get into that sort of world
0: where it's very filmic and very visceral. I remember seeing a documentary once on poker machines and um, I'd never really had realised that the score is is crucial to the punter getting addicted. The, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the sounds that the, the poker machine plays yeah. when they're playing and when they win and all that sort of thing, <clears throat> that psychological use of sound again is totally.
1: extraordinary. Yeah. There's so much of that that goes on around us and not just with sound as well, with light. Like the the way color affects us is just insane. Like, uh, yeah, it's amazing how much you go through life not realizing how curated our environment is in that way. You know, like an ad or as you say, a poker machine, um, you know, the color of a logo on a fast food joint. All of that has been carefully chosen for a very precise reason that is affecting your brain without you even knowing it. And it's kind kind of nuts not so we don't learn that stuff, that so we don't get taught.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, can we talk about a couple of shows that you've done and the process you've adopted in, in mm. creating the soundscape for that? Harp in the South at Sydney Theatre Company. Mm. So it's a play set in uh, Sydney in the, uh, the, yes. th- the 20s, 30s.
1: Yes, well, it Ranges several decades. Yeah. Several
0: decades, yeah. So how how do you um, acclimatise yourself to what were those sounds that harp was difficult finding australian
1: sounds are difficult in general we just don't have as big an industry as the us or europe so there's less libraries there's less existing material that's been archived and put out into the world for you to be able to access and then even worse is trying to find period australian stuff it's it's very light on the ground so i had to do quite a lot of digging to find some of those core sounds and then of course that aren't all necessarily helpful to you. I think one of the real challenges of a sound designer is to go, okay, this is what Patty's markets in the 1940s really would have sounded like. But you can't put that on stage because it would just be a horrible nightmare of noise, as it would have been at the time. Uh, You know, you would never get dialogue over the top of that. It would just be a mess. So you've got to go, okay, what, what are the quintessential sounds that can distill the essence of this space and this time down into a way that the audience are going to be able to instantly be shortcut into going, oh, I know exactly what that is or where that is. But without having to actually wade through the mire of of, you know, just noise and and busyness. So a lot of what you do is is simply about yeah, boiling things down to that kind of purity. So you learn a lot about birds, you learn a lot about insects as a sound designer. So you do a lot of study essentially of environments to go, okay, what you know, what are the birds that are native to this part of New South Wales or this part of the world? What are the insects that are sounding at this kind at this time of day? How do they differ from the insects that sound at night how's it different what summer sound like compared to what a winter's day sounds like all of those kind of things you've got to think about and and research if you don't already know if you don't have that that
0: detailed and that's that's a discussion you have with the director too and the creatives about the world that you're all collaborating on yeah
1: to a degree i mean essentially you're sort of trusted i suppose i I mean i'm sure a director wouldn't actively think about any of this stuff necessarily They'll, they'll go you essentially you make the decision are we going naturalistic or are we going abstracted or some other kind of pathway and you know for a show like harp you're largely playing with naturalism with a whole lot of abstraction that happens around it and with how it's delivered but ultimately at the heart of it the sound design is naturalistic so yeah it's your job to then go away and figure out what that entails and yeah i mean it's it's a part of the job i suppose it's the same as choosing one color as a line designer when you've got a you know swatch book of of thousands upon thousands it's finding that exact right one uh yeah so you do sort of learn over time what particular birds are singing where and what things work and what things trick the audience really quickly into understanding where they are so You know, like the sound of something like a magpie lark, for example, is a really great shortcut to rural Australia. You know, there's something about that sound that just, you know, you associate immediately with that. You know, certain types of cockatoos, the different kinds of varieties of cockatoo call can be a really great shortcut between city and country between, you know, 1940 and 2019. A lot of that stuff is really crucial. So, yeah, like I said, birds and insects, I tell you, you really, you do a lot of um, study on those.
0: What about Mr. Man? Um, we, we, you touched on um, a few moments ago. Mm. Uh, one man play, Tom Campbell, doing a terrific job playing a, a character in a small Irish village, played <laughs> by Markey, um, in which he speaks or, or interacts with all these recorded voices. Mm.
1: Yeah, Mr. Man is unusual and presents a challenge in that you have essentially, as you say, a whole, a whole lot of characters that have to interact with your live actor that are pre-recorded. It's very easy in a situation like that to fall into the trap of making something that isn't dynamic, that's very kind of labored and and doesn't have that natural flow of a conversation. So one of the first things you've got to do is, is go, well, how do we create that? How do we make it feel like this person's actually got a natural back and forth. And it's not actually just the actor having to count and go, okay, I've got two seconds till this next thing says that line. So I've got to fit mine in here. So you break it down into individual cues and rely on your stage manager essentially to have that conversation organically with every sentence, every reply being a separately cued thing.
0: So you're almost it's, orchestrating.
1: Yeah, you are. Yeah, and, and and your stage manager is essentially conducting that orchestra for you every night. It's, it's a really fine balance with a play like Mr. Man. Uh, and it's a lot of fun it's it's technically hugely challenging of course you've got all these real to real players that have to look like they're working and and cassette recorders that have to look like they're working uh amongst all sorts of other practical effects that the, the show has to achieve so just pulling that off you know you've got a lot of little speakers hidden around the set and you've got like for example little tricks we had We've always generally had one working reel-to-reel player on stage and in pre-show it will be playing, actually playing sound from a reel as part of the kind of cacophony that people walk into. So something as simple as that and immediately because the audience had to walk past it in the old fits to get to their seats, they immediately go, oh, that's actually playing sound. So suddenly when you're in the show and you've got sound appearing to come from all those reel-to-reels you sort of unquestionably buy into it as an audience member because you've sort of cheated it, you've tricked them with that one real thing in, in pre-show. So little kind of tricks like that to, to lead people along with it and make it feel as immersive and real as possible. Something like Mr. Man, to be effective, you've really got to have that um, bubbling tension in that theatre that you, you've got to make the audience feel like they're trapped in this little space with a madman. Uh, And to achieve that, it's gotta feel real. Anything that will break the magic, anything that they go, oh, that's a sound effect, or, oh, that's fake, or that's not really working, is just gonna break the spell. So you've gotta really be careful about being as detailed and as as fine-tuned as you can. So for that show, every single sound that I put together I would put the sound together. I would then have to break it up into cues and then on top of that you have to sort of treat it so it sounds like it's coming from a real to real player. So you put a particular kind of EQ, you put a bit of static crackle on it. You would think about how close or how far is the mic is his actual mic when he was recording this sound. And so you have to mix things up or down as you're hearing them accordingly. You know, if if a car there's a moment where you hear on the recording a car revving its engine, beeping its horn and and going away you know you've got to make that feel like it's traveling away from the microphone when it was recorded so all those little details go into it so there's a lot of work in the mixing end for that show like that and then a lot of work as i said for the stage manager and for the actor to have that very live very organic conversation every single
0: night yeah and a very hum- hungry caterpillar a kid show <laughs> yes do kids require a different set of sound or- oh yeah. yeah 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 different treatment very different
1: uh i mean the the biggest point of difference is that there isn't dialogue or there's very little dialogue so uh you know most most kids theater is image based or i should say the material that it comes from is image based so you don't have a lot of text to work with which means you're immediately free as a uh, composer to sort of fill that space but you've also got to keep it alive you know like kids need a lot of energy (laughs) and it's great fun scoring for a kids' show opens up a lot of uh avenues you just you wouldn't get away with um, doing adult theatre, particularly at a professional end. You know, if I were to put The Very Hungry Caterpillar score on a, a Sydney Theatre Company stage, for example, I'd probably have a lot of concerned, raised eyebrows in my direction. You know, it's it very busy, it's very full, it's very orchestral and rich. Um, and, and of course, like very bombastic, I suppose, is probably the best way of describing it. Uh, so yeah, for kids' theatre, you've got to be very mindful of that. You've got to be aware of the fact that kids are really bloody loud and when you put more than a hundred of them in a theatre space, whew, you know, your noise floor that you're competing with immediately goes up and up and up through the yeah, roof. Yeah, yeah. So automatically you have to have actors on microphones. You have to. Uh, you just can't be heard otherwise. So you've got all these factors like that. Hunger Caterpillar* is had the added difficulty of being uh made to be tourable so to date it's been i don't know 13 different countries it's been touring non-stop there's actually multiple different productions of it now and it's been going around around the world for the better part of six years now and you essentially have to design something even though you're not going to be there in all those different countries and different venues with it you have to design something that can kind of be transferred and reliably transferred along Uh, into each of those spaces without you there to sort of massage it. So when you're building it, you've got to be really mindful of how portable is it? How flexible is it? um, How many safety nets are built in? So Caterpillar is a good example where the microphones are actually operated through QLAP. So rather than having a separate stage manager or a separate mic mixer at the desk, the stage manager is essentially using QLab to trigger the lighting, de- or the sound desk to actually move around. So if you looked at it, you'd see the faders kind of magically moving up and down as if there's a ghost operating it. Um, but in the case of a mic uh, going down and having to be taken off an actor muted because it's popping or crackling or something like that, what do you do when you've got this really loud score, everyone else is on mics, so, for example we had to program a, a hotkey so a special little button on the laptop keyboard that could be pressed and when pressed if an actor's mic had to be muted you could press this button and it would bring the entire level of the show from that point onwards down by 10 db so the actor could suddenly speak live over it and still be heard so you kind of had this safety net in that particular, very particular scenario so you sort of have to think about all those Disaster possibilities, I suppose, and kind of build in these safety nets. So it's Plan a a, ABCD, but it's good fun. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so, what are you working on now? What's what's coming up?
1: Uh, so, I've got two shows open at Ensemble that we just just finished doing. So, Baby Doll and Fully Committed, which are running at the moment. So, I've really only just stepped out of the theatre from doing that. Uh, I'm kind of in a process of developing a show for next year with Monkey Bar called Edward the Emu, which is their big nationally touring show for the year, which will be a lot of fun. So we're going to, we're going to the zoo on Tuesday to go and check out real emus and <laughs> maybe record some sounds as well. That'll be fun. Uh, I am working on a project over in New York, um, which is still a bit top secret at this stage, but but uh, is kind of keeping me busy. That's in a workshop phase at the moment. Um, so doing that doing a youth theater production out at Petersham of all things at the moment, which is not what I normally do, but uh, working with a few friends um, yeah I had the time to squeeze it in so why not and then the next big show for me this year is probably HMS Pinafore uh, with Kate Gall, uh, who I always love working with so that's at the Hayes um,
0: do you find you have regular collaborators that, uh, yeah. that you work with a lot? yeah or- very much so yeah.
1: Yeah, I think uh, Kate is probably, yeah, would definitely be one of my oldest collaborators now at this point. We've done, oh, I don't know, quite, probably six or seven shows together now over the years. Uh, yeah, and there's a few others, Kip at SCC, we've done quite a few. Um, yeah, you definitely you definitely find yourself working with people that you sort of create a rapport with, but it's great when you do find someone who you can just, have that immediate understanding with you can kind of you know how each other thinks and and how you work and you can kind of save a lot of time on on discussions and just kind of jump straight into it really it's great to have
0: a that sh- a yeah exactly yeah,
1: yeah. yeah
0: well thank you for um enhancing our um auditory experiences <laughs> when we go to the theater um it's a significant contribution that sound designers make and it's been mm. terrific to um talk to you about it today so thank you thanks for having me That was a very informative conversation. I certainly learned heaps. Nate is obviously very passionate about his work and what a treat to have that insight into an unseen but vital component of theatre making. Nate Edmondson's next sound design can be heard in HMS Pinafore playing the Hayes Theatre from November 8th to December 14th. You've been listening to episode 89 of the Stages podcast so there are so many more episodes that you can discover. I've talked to everyone from directors to dancers to drag queens, from producers to playwrights and performers. It's all in the archive. Look out for episodes with Caroline O'Connor, Geraldine Turner, Kevin Jackson, Tony Lebon, Tony Sheldon, Gail Edwards, Tommy Murphy, Andrew McFarlane and Kate Gall. Far too many to mention here, so find the podcast in iTunes and Spotify or do a search for Stages with Peter Ayers and our hosting platform, Wooshka. Thanks again for listening. I'm Peter Ayers and this has been Stages.